What's up, everybody? Thank you so much for coming out tonight. Uh, my name's Jesse. You're going to meet uh, Nick in a little bit. Uh, he's the more flannel-wearing member <laughs> of the two of us, but uh, I'm not here to make hipster jokes until later in the show. But, you know, it feels almost, I'm going to use the word sacrilegious in full awareness of where I am, but it feels sacrilegious to do a Christmas show and not start with a little Nat King Cole. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost nipping at your nose. Yuletide carols being sung by a choir that folks dressed up like Eskimos. Everybody knows hot turkey and some mistletoe helps to make the season bright. Tiny tots with their eyes all aglow will find it hard to sleep. Do Mother's child is gonna spy See if her reindeer really knows how to fly And so I'm offering this simple phrase To kids from one Although it's been said many times, many ways, Merry Christmas to They know that Santa's on his way. Thank you. He's loaded lots of toys and goodies on his sleigh. And every mother's child 
From one to ninety-two, although it's been said many times, many ways, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas to. Thank you so much, you guys. Jesse Peters. After that, I, I feel like we're now at the place where we can legitimately say Merry Christmas. Uh, hi, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, as Jesse said, my name is Nick Coates. This is Jesse Peters. And welcome to Do You Hear What I Hear? A night of trying to rehear the Christmas story in a brand new way. How are you doing? We're good, we're here, we're present, awesome. That's all we ask for. Uh, thank you so much for making this a part of your evening, and a huge thanks to St. Stephen's Anglican Church for giving us this space. It's, it's one of my favorite spaces in this city, and it is such a joy and honor here uh, to be here, especially for all the work they're doing with marriage equality. It is, it's a really big treat to be in this space. Uh, so as we get started, um, a few hospitality things to throw out at you. Um, if you got to go to the washroom at any point throughout this, cool, you got to go when you got to go. Head out to the back, hang a left, and just follow the signs. And you go downstairs, and there's like six to choose from. Uh, but more, for, uh, more importantly, um, whoever you are, wherever you're at, whatever it is that brought you here, if you're here because you've got some questions about the Christmas story, if you're here because you've got some misgivings about the whole Christmas thing, if your friend dragged you here and you're like, oh my God, did I just get brought to church? Uh, whatever the reason you're here, uh, may you know that in this place you're welcome, you're wanted, and you're accepted uh, just as you are. And it means so much that you guys are here to share in this evening with us. We're here tonight uh, because I don't know if you've noticed all the lights and the nonstop Christmas music, but it's Christmas time in Calgary. It's that time of excitement, of traditions, and nostalgia of anticipation and festivities, of good music, good food, awkward family dinners. But it's also the time of this thing, nativity sets. You guys know nativity sets, don't you? You may have seen some at churches or in movies. Maybe you've got one at home. There are those scenes where we dress people up like people who on any day of the year we'd racially profile. Yeah, those things. There are depictions of that ancient origin story of Christmas. This story of the virgin who gets pregnant by God, of angels appearing to shepherds, of a star, wise men, and an evil king, and a special baby being born in a stable. Now, I don't know if any of this is true for you, but this is true for me, and it's a bit embarrassing to say because I am a, a minister. But this thing has always confused me. And my confusion wasn't just wrapped up in, oh, is this true? Like, did it literally go down like this? 
but it also revolved around what makes this story so enduring and special. What could this cute little children's story possibly have to say to me, to us today? Is there a meaning to this that's bigger and deeper and wider than just Jesus' birthday or a prelude to Easter? Do you guys ever ask those questions too? Yeah, I'm sure a lot of us have. Many people have asked me those questions in my work. And even though it's a story that kind of ebbs and flows behind this season, I think it's one that a lot of us don't really know how to hear. And for me, it wasn't until eight years ago that everything changed because of my crazy neighbor. When I was living in Toronto, uh, going to grad school, there was a woman who lived on my street who every single year would have a nativity set on her yard. And she was dubbed crazy because these nativity sets were crazy. They never looked anything like this. One year, all the characters in the nativity set were famous holiday figures. There was Frosty, there was Santa, there was a Grinch in the cast of Love Actually. They had signs being, Behold, a Savior is born for unto you. Yeah, it was crazy. Uh, another year, uh, the nativity set was set on a reserve with the holy couple being an indigenous couple. And this year, I'm told she's got a same-sex immigrant family camped out in the shadow of the White House. <laughs> Crazy, I know, right? But it was there and walking by these things year after year after year that I began to wonder if she's on to something. Maybe she's more brilliant than crazy. Because after diving into it all and spending some time learning about the stuff that I want to share with you, I began to hear the Christmas story in a brand new way. A way where this isn't just some cute little kid story, but rather a powerful story of hope, subversion, revolution, and liberation. A story that still has something to say to us. A story that can open up a whole new way of understanding what it means to be human and alive in this world. And so tonight, the plan is that through some music and through some words, uh, we'll open up a bit of the historical context. We'll reach into the story and hopefully be able to hear to truly and really hear this ancient story in a brand new way. This story that begins in this backwater middle of nowhere town called Bethlehem. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still and you lie above thy deep and Dead in thy darkness, the everlasting light, hopes and fears of all the earth are met in thee For Christ is born of men. 
world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in, oh holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us. Thank you. So for us to really hear this story, for it to really come alive for us today, we need to know where the story takes place. But we're not just talking about the stable in Bethlehem. To really understand and hear this story, we need to get a bit more altitude and understand the world that took place. And when we talk about the story of Christmas, we're talking about the world of the Roman Empire. As humanity entered into the first century, the Roman Empire took up a huge chunk of the then-known world. It expanded out from Rome, went north to the UK, east to Syria, Palestine, and Turkey, south to the Mediterranean, to northern Africa and Egypt, and west all the way to Spain. At its peak, we're talking five million kilometers square. That's half of Canada. That's huge in charge with controlling, maintaining, and expanding this massive empire were three men with the coolest job title in the history of the world. The Roman Triumvirate. How awesome is that? But because one job title is not cool enough, each of the three men took on their own job titles, each meant to re represent the 
almighty, don't mess with us nature of the empire. So Mark Antony, he took on holy gods. Octavius took on the son of God. And Marcus Emilius, he went with king of kings. He kind of got the short end of the stick, I think. But here's the thing about power. Just like the Toblerone bar I'll put in my girlfriend's stocking, power is not easily shared. At the beginning of the first century, a civil war broke out amongst the triumvirate. And for ten years, violence and chaos swept across the empire. Thousands were slaughtered, thousands were displaced, families were divided, towns destroyed. It was one of the darkest periods of the Roman Empire history. But then, in the early years of that first century, Octavius, he triumphed over the others, and he became the sole ruler of the empire, consolidating all the power for himself, consolidating all those cool names for himself, becoming the emperor, the holy divine Octavius, the son of God and the king of kings. And immediately the empire began to celebrate this good news, declaring that peace has been made. The poet Horace wrote, You, O king of kings, have wiped away our sins. Virgil, the guy who wrote the Aeneid, he praised Octavius, saying, Caesar, son of God, and the prince of peace, the savior of the world. And others wrote how there is no other name under which we can be saved except for Caesar, for Caesar is Lord. And others wrote how the birthday of the most divine Caesar was the beginning of the gospel. Gospel being this imperial term, which means good news. It was a word they would use whenever they would have some royal pronouncement to make. And for years, Rome flourished and peace was indeed had. But here's the thing about this peace. Here's what we need to know about it. It was a very particular kind of peace. Today we call it the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And that peace was kept and sustained by something like this. Let's say you're heading down the street to your local Roman 7-Eleven to buy some milk, and you come across the Roman army, and they stop you. Now, at this point, a few things could happen, but most likely what would happen is they would ask you a very important question. And that question would be this. Who is Lord? Which is essentially a way of asking, who is the one who shapes and forms and directs your life? Who is the one that you follow? which could be an innocent question. But then you look closely at them, and you see their hands are on their swords, they've got their spears raised. And now there's only one correct answer to that question, and everybody knew this. And the correct answer was, well, Caesar is Lord. He takes away our sins. He is the Son of God, the King of kings, the Prince of peace. He is the one that I follow. And if you said that, well, all was cool. The spears would be lowered, the swords put away, and you could go get your milk. But if you answered with anything but that, if you hesitated, if you resisted, if you named anyone but Caesar as Lord, death is what would happen. Sometimes there in the moment, they just kind of throw you in the woods. But more often, because Rome knew the power of a good symbol to send a message to everyone else who may hesitate, resist, or rebel, Rome invented this way of dealing with those who dare question and challenge the established way and wisdom of the world. Crucifixion. Crucifixion was what would happen to you if if you resisted or took a knee to the empire. 
Now we have these stories about whole towns and villages will, will be made an example of. Places like Sepphoris, Emmaus, and Magdala. That will be the place that Mary Magdalene is from. They would all be crucified. We're talking about fields and fields of people upon crosses. And they just leave them up. Letting that message sink in for anybody who would walk by, submit and surrender because this is what happens if you step out of line. This is what happens if you choose to push back against how the world works. And now if we zoom in a bit and we find this Roman territory called Israel, this heavily Jewish area where we find places like Galilee, Nazareth, Bethlehem, and Jerusalem, basically all the places that Jesus hung out. The guy responsible for getting that message to sink in there was a guy named Herod. Herod was what you would call a client king. And he was put in charge of that territory by Rome to help keep the peace and sustain the empire. And Herod, eager, ambitious, and incredibly cruel, he wasted no time in doing just that. Herod became famous for building stuff. He built garrisons, forts, seaports, barracks, and towers. And he built a mountain. Yes, a mountain. And get this, the mountain was big enough where it had its own plumbing, and at the top of it, it had a lake that was big enough for people, for ships to do battle in. Some scholars even think that this is the mountain that Jesus is talking about when he says, your faith can be strong enough to throw mountains into seas. But here's the thing about all that building. That's just a cool fact for you. The thing about all that building, it wasn't just meant to stroke Herod's ego or defend against foreign enemies. First and foremost, all of that building was intentionally designed to display the power and strength of the empire to the residents. All of it meant to curb any questioning and resistance. All of it meant to further repress the people by showing them just what they are up against if they ever chose to speak out or act out. And if they did speak or act out, if there was even a whiff of challenge or dissent, Herod was infamous for taking away food and water of villages, leaving them to starve to death. Or his preferred method, one we hear about in the Christmas story, killing the firstborn child of every family in the village just to prove a point, just to silence any threats, all that meant to keep the people in the place. And so when we talk about the world of the Roman Empire, this is the world we're talking about. And for the vast majority of people who lived there, it was a life in a world of despair. A life in a world where it became almost impossible to imagine anything different. A life in a world where regardless of what you actually thought or believed, you went along with it because, well, what choice do you have? It was a world that through violence, oppression, and death, sent a clear and devastating message to everybody that this is how you're meant to live. This is how the world works. Choose it or choose death. It doesn't take much for us to imagine that that life in a world would drive people to look up to the darkness and let out that lament that's buried deep inside them, crying out, are we meant to live like this? Is there some other way? And so it's this world that we need to 
not just understand and know about in order to hear the Christmas story, but if we're also here wondering what that could possibly say to us today, it's a world we really need to understand. Because the thing is, well, it's tempting for us to think that anything that happened more than, more than 2,000 years ago is irrelevant for us today. That it possibly, we could have nothing in common with it. I have to wonder if our lives and world are really that different from the Roman Empire. I mean, sure, the context and the characters have all changed. But even in our privileged existence, we're all still human. We all still know what it's like to experience despair, don't we? We all still know what it's like to say and do things because the alternative is a certain kind of death. We still know what it's like to live under that particular kind of pain. And I don't think we have to look really too far to see it. We see it in those of us who live under the stigma of mental illness. We see it in those of us who can't come out for fear of being disowned by our families. We see it in the pressure to always be strong, say I'm fine and have our stuff together. We see it in those of us who aren't believed after being sexually assaulted. And then Christmas rolls around, and everything just gets ramped up to 11, doesn't it? There's this duty and obligation to be joyful and merry. There's this social pressure and all those anxieties of having to perform, be on, engage, and entertain. There's that financial stress of being able to pull it all off. There's that pressure to hide who you truly are and what you really think so you don't mess with the family. There's the loneliness and the grief. So many of us experience this time of year when other people are getting together with their families. It can be pretty tough, can't it? Anyone know what we're talking about? Yeah, I think we all do. Even today in our privileged lives and world, we still know darkness and despair. We still know what it's like to feel trapped and not to stare up into the darkness and let out that lament. Am I meant to live like this? Is this really how it's supposed to be? It won't be too long. on turning Don't know if I can hold out that long Leaves me singing Oh come, oh come Emmanuel 
Tell the Son of God I'm here. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come for me, O Israel. Keep on trying to reach that higher ground. Mm -hmm. Gonna keep on trying to be. And so it's this world, a world that turns out that's, off, that's a lot like ours, that we have this story we're all wondering about taking place. This story about a virgin girl getting pregnant by God, an angel appearing to shepherds, a star, wise men, an evil king, and a special baby being born in a manger. And now for as big a thing as Christmas is today, you would think that Christmas would be this massive part of the Bible. But the truth is, you can only find Christmas in two of the four Gospels. 
those books that talk about who Jesus is and what Jesus is all about. Only Matthew and Luke have anything to say about Christmas. And even then, it's two chapters. Not a lot about Christmas. But for tonight, we'll bring those stories together and we'll look at a couple parts of them that may help this whole thing pop. And we'll begin where Luke begins. With angels. With choruses of angels, those heavenly divine messengers coming down to earth with their own gospel message. Their own good news for the world. Now here's the first thing we need to know when we're talking about these angels. These aren't just any angels. These aren't the angels coming down to console and comfort Euler fans. Sorry, sorry, I, 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 I had... We were talking earlier about the angel of the nativity, and it, it kind of looks like Tinkerbell's more modest Amish sister. Sorry. <laughs> it's true. But I, I digress. That's the flames, the flames angel. But the angels we're talking about, these are angels with, the, with good news for the entire world angels. So one would think, I think, that they would bring this good news to the people who would be the natural choice to receive it and be able to host a chorus of angels. You know, people like the emperor, people like King Herod, even people like the religious leaders. But these angels don't give this good news to the people at the top. Instead, as our story goes, the angels come down and they give this good news to a whole bunch of shepherds. Now, this is the first place we need to pull over because to the audience who would first hear this story, this is when they would fall out of their seats and yell out, angels appearing to shepherds? Them appearing to them? That is scandalous, ridiculous, and offensive. And they would leave. Because here's the thing about shepherds. Despite the nice and, and Jesus-y image we get of them from certain parts of the Bible, the perception of shepherds at this time was actually the opposite. Shepherding was considered the lowest, worst, and most reviled of jobs. The Mishnah, which is this collection of Hebrew wisdom and teaching, it taught that there is no more disreputable an occupation than that of a shepherd. Ouch. To be a shepherd was socially, culturally, and religiously deplorable. They had no community, no status, no home, thereby making them nobodies. They smelled bad, they were always filthy, thereby making them religiously unclean and therefore seen as sinful and disconnected from God. And they led their sheep into people's land, thereby being seen as essentially thieves. And when, whenever they would come into town, people would scatter because they would have to wonder what did that guy have to do in order to end up as a shepherd. And it's to these guys, to the lowest of the low, to the most marginalized group of people at this time, that the angels brought their good news of Christmas, saying to those shepherds, don't be afraid. I am bringing to you good news of great joy for all people. For to you this day is born a Savior, who is the Messiah, who is the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And so we're told the shepherds, they follow the star they were told to follow. And once again, 
It didn't lead them up, but it led them down. Not into the palaces in Rome, not into Herod's mountain, not into the temple in Jerusalem, but into this middle of nowhere town, this place as far away from the centers of power and influence as you could possibly get, and into this stable behind some cheap, no-vacancy motel. And there they met a couple named Mary and Joseph and their baby, wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. Now Mary, we think, is probably 14 or so. And Joseph, most scholars now agree, probably isn't too much older. Which makes the whole story a bit less creepy than the usual depictions do of of Joseph being a, a much older man. And Mary and Joseph, they would be perfect candidates for Dr. Phil because they have quite the story. About nine months before this, the angels were at it again, and this time an angel named Gabriel, he appeared to Mary, and he told her how God has this plan for the universe. But for the plan to work, there's a catch. You need to become pregnant. Now, we don't know why this Mary is chosen, um, or asked at least. Uh, There are ancient commentaries that talk about how Gabriel actually approached many other women before this, but they all said no. And at first, it looks like Mary might do the same. Still being a virgin and planning on waiting until she's married, she says to Gabriel, there's got to be some kind of mistake. But the angel replies, nope, there's no mistake. If you're down with it, God's spirit will come upon you, and you will give birth to the true Son of God. And he shall be Lord and King above all others and all the earth. And you will name him Jesus. And Mary, Hearing this and understanding what God's plan is, she gives consent and she says, yes, let me be the one to do this. And now here's the other place we're going to pull over. Because when we hear of this story, Mary often gets cast as this, this cute image of innocence, doesn't she? She's this character we can awe and smile at and think, oh, what a nice, young, submissive young girl. But here's why that's the last thing we should think about whenever we hear Mary's story. Mary's actually a punk. And here's the reason why she's actually a punk. The reason why she's not a cute, submissive girl, but actually a strong and powerful woman. The reason why her yes isn't just blind obedience or consent under the biggest power dynamic you could possibly get, but rather a profound, subversive, and revolutionary act. It all comes down to the name of that baby, Jesus. We hear, of course, as Jesus, but to the original Hebrew audience, however, they would have heard Yeshua. And that's important because we, we, we lose something in the translation here, something that really makes this story take on a different kind of tone. The root word of Jesus, the root word of Yeshua is Yah. And Yah, to the Hebrew audience, is connected to the name of the God of Israel, Yahweh. And so when people would hear Yeshua, they would hear Yahweh, and their minds would immediately go to one very specific, very particular story. The story that took place a couple thousand years before this, during the reign of a different empire. This other empire that oppressed, constricted, and controlled but this time not through violence, but through slavery. 
through stripping away people's humanity and dignity by forcing them into a life of making bricks and doing it for so long and so often that they too wound up in a life and world that was full of darkness and despair. This life and world that made them look up into the skies and yell out, are we really meant to live like this? Is this really how it's meant to be? And this story talks about how this God named Yahweh heard those cries and this God began to move. But this God didn't move with the powerful and the elite. This God didn't turn up on the side of the Pharaoh. Instead, this God moved with this enslaved, the oppressed, and the beaten. This God sided with those who are trapped in the darkness and despair. And the story tells about how this God defeated the empire and liberated those people, leading them out of narrow living and into something wider, bigger, and free, delivering them into a new kind of life and a new kind of world. A life and world, the story says, that was always meant to be from the very beginning. It's a story we know as the Exodus. It's one of the foundational stories in the the Judeo-Christian tradition because it reveals one of the most central truths about God, universe, source, spirit, whatever word you want to use for that ultimate something bigger than ourselves. And that truth is this. God is a God of liberation. A God who always sides with the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed. Who is always moving to bring light and life where there is darkness and despair. Mary's yes. Mary's yes to bringing that baby named Jesus into the world is a profound, subversive, and revolutionary act. Because it's a blatant act of defiance against the powers that be and the established way and wisdom of the world. Because what she is bringing into the world is the one thing that can crack open systems of oppression, darkness, and despair and bring them tumbling down. And that thing is hope. Hope that this isn't how their lives and world have to be. Hope that if God moved once before, then God could move again. Hope that they didn't have to live like that. Hope that their cries have been heard and a new kind of life and world is possible. Now there's some other stuff we could talk about tonight. Some other parts of the Christmas story we could unpack. But I think even these two things, the shepherds and Mary, through them we can begin to hear this Christmas story in a new way and find what this Christmas story is really about. Because if the Christmas story is about anything, it's about radical and defiant hope through the shepherds, who are really these stand-in characters for all those who find themselves at the bottom of a heap, forgotten, kicked out, and beaten down, for all those who rumble in the arenas of darkness and despair. To them, it gives a hopeful message of, you don't have to live like that. You don't have to live like that. And through Mary, who again is that stand-in character for all those people with courageous imaginations and who defiantly move towards the life and world their souls long for. It's the hopeful message of there's a new story you can be a part of. Step into it and be free as you are always meant to be. Because Christmas is a message of hope, Christmas is a message of liberation of being able to be freed from that which traps us into narrow living 
and be led into something that is wider, deeper, bigger, and free, into the kind of life and world that we are always meant to have from the very, very beginning. What helped me hear the Christmas story in a new way was realizing that the Christmas story, it's not just set in that world of darkness and despair, but it's a story that responds to that world of darkness and despair by co-opting its language, by having its own gospel and its own good news, by co-opting its phrases, by talking about a different kind of king, a different kind of lord, a different kind of prince of peace, by co-opting its power systems, by all this stuff being given to the lowest and the weakest, and by having this new king be born in a feeding trough. The story sets itself up in and against this and any other story of oppression and death, subverting that reality and narrative by offering one of its own. One that tells all of us who live in darkness and despair, you don't need to live like that. You don't need to live like that. You don't need to live like that. Those things that beat you down those things that are weighing heavily upon you, those things that bring anxiety into your life, those false narratives and labels you've been given, they do not have the final say, and they will not last. For that word belongs to God, and it's a word of light and life. Christmas is that invitation to come and be a part of a new story, to step out, to be brave and move towards a new kind of life and world, a new way of being human and alive, a way that is free, a way that is full of light and life. I'm drunk on liberation, never felt so free. Switch it up right there. I'm drunk on liberation, never felt so free. Finally moving forward, finally got what I need. The chains of yesterday, finally broken in the streets. Running for the border. Closer to the me that I hope to be eventually. The me that's more than hurt and melancholy essentially. Digging deep to find the treasure buried in pain and involuntary self-hate. Suffer from comparisonitis, the disease is never as good as anybody else. The slightest misery or failure of perfection is like getting ripped apart by the infection that I call depression. So I choose to do this publicly. Secrecy was killing me, but call crazy. My gaslighting buddy, shining a light on the past, misdeeds is thrilling me. Set me free, man, screw these chains of abuse. I'm walking with G.O.D. now. I'm standing up now, throwing a hand up right now. By grace, I'm finally learning to be okay with me now. Cause I'm drunk on liberation, never felt so free. Finally moving forward, finally got what I 
Too many years, spoke the truth and then backtrack Cause so many fears, inspiration choked by being trapped in a role of a scapegoat Useless tears ain't changing mind, so I finally wrote my manifesto Settling the second best, no, I lived on scraps from the get-go Ain't frozen no more, so I let go and started killing the blues like Camp Mo Not techno, it's an organic way to grow From forgotten wounds to the keeping in store Heard the voice of the roots yelling, do you want more? Yes I do, someone grabbing a hand up Hashtag stand up, not man up Cause it ain't through my power that I found love And I'm slowly learning the ways of liberty Getting to a place where they can't hurt Let's I'm drunk on liberation Never felt so free Finally moving forward Finally got what I need The chains of yesterday are lying broken in the streets I'm running for the border saying it's so good to be free, so good, so good, so good. That's why I'm singing it like this. Thank you so much, you guys. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't throw in a little gospel music before the end of our evening. So. I said, go tell it on the mountain, over the hills. Everywhere I said go, tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. While shepherds kept their watching over silent flock by night, the whole throughout the heaven the shone Tell it on the mountain 
Listen, guys, so we've been doing a lot for you, but I'm going to need a little help on this. So when I say go, I want y'all to say go right after me. I said go. Go. Tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. I said go. Go. Tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ was born. That's pretty good, but I'm going to need your hands on this now. Come on. Thank you so much, you guys. Jesse Peters, everybody. Amazing, man. Thank you. And so with that tune in our hearts, that we do have something to trust in, something to proclaim, that that which beats you down, that which keeps you captive, you can be liberated from. You don't have to live like that. So as we head deep into Christmas, may you hear the message of Christmas. Freedom is here. You don't have to live like that. Be brave. Step forward and step into the kind of life and world we are always meant to have. 
And because this is the kind of churchy, let's end in a churchy kind of way. And to that good news, everybody says, amen. Cool. Thank you guys so much for coming. Have a great night. We'll see you guys again soon. Thanks, man. That was awesome. Yes, thank you.